And my name is Jeremy Biedenbaugh. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. This morning, our sermon text comes from one of the great climaxes, one of the great mountain peaks in all of Scripture, Romans 8, 31 to 39. Would you read along with me? Words will be on the screen. The Apostle Paul says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised who is seated at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or sword or nakedness or danger? As it is written, for your sake, We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, for we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, you have told us that your word is powerful like a a double-edged sword. It is able to pierce. It is able to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. So that is our confidence this morning. We come asking you to pierce us, to divide us, and then to heal us and bind us up by the power of your word and the love of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Paul begins this, this, this passage with a question. And he's going to be asking questions throughout, but he begins with a question, what then shall we say to these things? It's as if Paul is standing in the presence of something great, something majestic, something wonderful, and now he has become, as it were, speechless. What then can I say about these things. What are these things? He's been talking about them all in Romans 8, mainly that because Jesus loves you, there is now no condemnation for you. That because Jesus loves you, there is now God working to make suffering into glory for you. Because Jesus loves you, now the Spirit himself prays for you and intercedes for you. Because Jesus loves you, all things now will work together for your good. That is what Paul is now standing in awe of and saying, I'm almost speechless. What then can we say to these things? And I would ask you just this question to start out, because maybe you're here and you're thinking, I I don't really believe in Jesus. I'm not sure what I think about him. Uh, I don't really know yet, or I don't really think about it. I don't really care that much, actually. But let me ask you this, do you have something in your life that you are living for that you would stand before like the Apostle Paul in awe and majesty? Is there something 
in which you are living for that you would say and say, what can I even say to this? It is so glorious. That's what Paul says that Jesus is like. That's what Paul says his love is like. And so we know right away that Jesus and his gospel is not just some list of rules to be followed, but he is a person to be stood in awe of and enjoyed and appreciated. And so Paul is going to continue. He says he can't find words, but he's going to try to find words. And he goes through, he's going to ask four more questions. He's forcing us to ask ourselves the question. He's forcing us to respond ourselves. And so he begins, verse 31, he says this, if God is for us, who then can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, nobody. That's the intended answer. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. Really? When I read that, I, really, Paul? Nobody? Nobody can be against us? I can't have any enemies? Nobody can give me any grief? I've got a list of candidates lined up for you. None in this congregation. I didn't mean that. Only the ones laughing are the, you know, the, you know who you are. No, there, there, we could all build a list of candidates. How about this, God? How about my finances? How about my parents? How about my kids? How about my health? How about Satan himself? Are those good enough? Could those stand against me? Could those be an enemy against me? Could I count those? And so we see really quickly that what Paul is doing there is not saying that you have no enemies. In fact, he's going to say later, there are plenty of things that will try to stand against you. But what he's saying is compare the two. Put God in this corner. Put God over here, infinite, eternal, alpha, omega, beginning and end, speaking galaxies into existence. God in this corner. And then in the other corner, put the issues and the people who would stand against you, who are finite and weak and temporal and created and dependent. Compare the two and ask yourself the question, is your view of God adequate enough to say that if God is for me, none of these things can be against me? None of these things have the power to stand against me. They will not have the last word. How do I know that? How do we know this? Verse 32, what does he say? He who did not spare his own son. And I just want to just, just call our attention that, that Paul and, and God in Scripture here are bringing all the most important things in the universe into this verse 32. We, think, we tend to think that you know, the most important things are, are out there. They're this, the celebrity gossip, the, the, the what's in our bank accounts, our careers. All these things are the most important. But Paul is drawing our attention and saying everything of wisdom and importance and joy and greatness come together in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. Just let those words fall on you for a moment. He did not spare his own son. I love my son. There's a special love between fathers and sons. And I've only known him for two and a half years. God knew his son from, in, from eternity, from infinity. A perfect relationship from eternity. And yet God did not spare himself the pain of delivering up his son. Delivering him to what? 
delivering him up to what? What did God deliver his son to? Delivered him to a world that would mock him, that would lie about him, that would spit on him, that would beat him, and ultimately a world that would cruelly kill him in the most unbelievable, unjust, humiliating way possible. He did not spare his own son. So how do I know that God is for me and not against me? He didn't spare his own son. He didn't hesitate to give the greatest thing. And there, how, how much more than will he give the little things? Do you know that God's love for his own son was a nearly insurmountable obstacle to him being able to love you and me? Nearly insurmountable. But he did not spare him. He did not spare himself the pain of delivering him up. And so we can say that God is for us. If he did the hard thing, if he walked through fire for us, how much more will he do the easy thing? Let me give you a practical example of why this matters. I've been thinking about it this week. I've been about this passage this week, and I've been so glad to be in this passage uh, because I've been this week experiencing uh, a very harsh reality in my life, a very painful reality, what this passage would call a a tribulation, a distress, a loss. And I I don't need to tell you what it is because I don't want to draw attention away from Christ to me. I want to draw your attention to what God can do. But as I begin to think through this thing, that's kind of plagued me and burdened me throughout the week, I felt my heart begin to turn and begin to get up in the face of God and get bitter and to say, you don't really love me. You're not really for me. You're withholding from me. And then I get to feel the joy of this verse, of this passage, wash over me and take me from being sinfully in the face of God and put me in the face of my emotions and in the face of my circumstances and in the face of a painful world and say, no, that is a lie. God is for me. He delivered his own son to make it so. I can have the utmost confidence. And so it lets all of us, when tragedy strikes, when the night falls, when terror comes, it lets all of us say with power, if God is for me, who then can stand against me? The answer comes back, nobody. Because he did not spare his own son to make it so. And so you can take even the smallest things, even the smallest inconveniences and frustration of your life, getting stopped by a train when you're running late and uh, just the smallest little inconveniences 
and let it destroy a murmuring and complaining heart. And you can take the big things, the, the cancer and the death and the poverty, and you can take that and say, if he did not spare his own son, that he is for me. I believe that you and I will see that, that God's love paid a cost that we will never quite know, we will never quite understand, we will never quite reckon or be able to quantify, but we will spend eternity exploring it and praising it. He shows us it is a costly love. That is what real love is, isn't it? It costs something. It overcomes in order to express itself. And so J.I. Packer sums up these two verses and says this, the quotes on the screen he says the the meaning of he will give us all things can be put this thus one day we will see that nothing literally nothing which could have increased our eternal happiness has been denied us and that nothing literally nothing that could have reduced that happiness has been left with us what higher assurance do we want than that and yet after that paul is not done. He continues to ask questions. He continues to build his case. And now he's going to ask the question, not only the question's going to get stronger. It's not only who can be against us, but now it's who can bring a charge, verse 33, who could bring any charge against God's elect, against God's chosen people? Answer again, nobody. Why? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn us? Who can condemn? Answer again, nobody. How do I know? He says in verse 34, Jesus is the one who died. We already talked about that in verse 2. Yes, he died. What else did he do? He says, more than that, he was raised. He kicked down the door of hell. He kicked down the door of death. He was raised. And now, more than that, who is seated at God's right hand? In other words, who is on the throne, who is ruling and reigning over all things. More than that, who is interceding, indeed interceding, for us. In other words, standing in the gap. In other words, speaking for you to God. Saying to God, that one is mine. I am the one you did not spare me. He is the one that you did not spare me for. She is the one that you delivered me up to save. Interceding for us. And so it cost Jesus everything. His love cost him everything, but he doesn't just pay the cost and then turn and walk away and forget about it. He's committed. His love is committed. Real love is committed. It's not, uh, it, it's, it's not just passive. It is pursuing. It's not just talking. It is taking. Jesus is making vows to us. I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm committed to you. I'm at God's right hand ruling all things for you. I'm talking to God and interceding on your behalf. I am committed to you beyond all you could imagine. No one can condemn you if you are in Christ. And so John Stott concludes verse 34 with these words. We can therefore confidently challenge the universe with all its inhabitants, human and demonic. Who is he that condemns? And there will never be any answer. The universe will remain silent before the love of Christ. 
And yet Paul will build on here. He will continue to ask more questions. And now it's not only who could be against us or who could bring a charge against us, but now it's who, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In other words, who could physically force us apart? And Paul is going to give us his own candidates now. He begins to tell us in, in verse 35, who, who could? Shall, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You ever experience any of those things? Distress, tribulation, persecution? Paul could have just said, listen, any bad thing, it won't separate you. He could have said anything negative, that's what I'm talking about. But he wants to get this comprehensive list so you know you are included in the list. Your story is included in the list. Your life is included in the list. That's what Paul wants to tell you. Why does he ask about separation? Why does he say who could separate us from Christ? The answer is that, and we need to hear this because the answer is that every bad thing that happens to us in our lives, every negative circumstance, every painful, horrific reality has one aim. Satan has one aim in those things, and that is this, to separate you from your faith in Christ, to separate you from the love of Christ. Isn't that what Job's wife said? Remember, he, he, he experienced unspeakable tragedy, loss of all his wealth, possessions, even his children. And his wife comes and says, it's, it's, it's over, Job. Curse God and die. Be separated from him and die. I think if, we, if you've lived long enough, you have maybe even experienced that own desire, that own reality in your own heart to look out at a cruel, cold world and say, where is Jesus' love anywhere in here? I don't care if the Bible does tell me so. I don't feel like Jesus loves me very much. I don't see it very clearly whenever I look out into the world. I don't feel like he's for me. I don't feel like he's justified me. I don't feel like he's interceding. And so if you're like me, when you get to this point in the passage, I'm ready for Paul to make it all better. I'm ready for Paul just to kind of smooth this out now and say, wrap it up with a fairy tale ending. And instead, he, he throws this doozy in on, on verse 36. Quote Psalm 44. For your sake, that is God, look God, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He says, for your sake? For whose sake? For God's sake. Read Psalm 44 one time. What he's saying is that, for your sake, Lord, in other words, we have been putting ourselves out there, speaking for you, living for you, obeying you. And what has it gotten us? Being killed all the day long, being sent out as sheep to be slaughtered. And so Paul comes almost to the same conclusion that Jesus does in Matthew 10 we saw a few weeks ago. where He says, you have nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. The worst they could do is kill you. Don't worry, don't fear. What are you worried about? The worst that they could do is take your life from you. The worst that could happen is that you could be like a sheep to be slaughtered. And we begin to ask ourselves, am I going to be the sheep? Is tribulation around the corner? Is distress around the corner? Danger, persecution, famine? We begin to wonder, where am I in that story? And Paul says, you don't have anything to fear because the worst they can do is kill you. As we're going to see, he's going to say that even that cannot separate you 
from the love of Christ. We've seen that throughout the history of Christianity. One of my favorite stories is the story of a young girl named Margaret Wilson who was arrested in 1685. She was only 18 years old, but she was illegally attending worship services. It was illegal then and that day in Scotland to do what we are doing here today. If we were doing this, the, the authorities would come in and take everyone out and uh, Either you had to recant your faith or be killed. So they came and they got young Margaret and another older woman, and they asked them to recant their faith and to admit that the king was the head of the church and not Jesus. And they refused to do so, and so they tied Margaret Wilson into the Solway, into the channel out into the Irish Sea there. They tied her there and said, well, let the tide rise over her head until she recants, because surely she will. And as the tide rose, it came up to her chin. The accuser walked out and said, swear the oath of allegiance. Break your oath with Christ. And instead she sung Psalm 25. And the tide got higher. And he said, swear the oath and you can be saved. And she began to quote Romans 8. And she said, nothing can separate me from the love that is mine in Christ Jesus. That's an 18-year-old girl. And the water swallowed her. And that's courage. You want a hero? In my book, she's a hero. A tragic one, yes, but a hero nonetheless. What gave her that courage? This very passage to say, there's nothing in all of creation that can separate me from the love of Christ. And you might say that's over 300 years ago. That's a moot point. Tell that to the Christians who are in Nepal or Indonesia or China or Sudan or Iran, to mention the name of Christ in those countries would get you far worse than what Margaret Wilson received. As I said a couple weeks ago, last year alone, 170,000 people were killed, not from cancer, not from heart disease, not from car accidents, but because they believed in Jesus and they spoke about it publicly. 170,000. So Paul is saying that Jesus' love will not mean that we will be spared every pain. Jesus' love does not mean that our life will be full of comfort and ease. And in fact, almost the opposite true. It is for your sake that we are being killed all the day long. And so if you're willing to follow, if you're willing to come after Jesus, if you're willing to risk it, then chances are you're putting yourself in the line of fire. So what does Paul say now? Is he ready now to, to wrap this up and give us the fairy tale ending? Verse 37. He's answering the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That should strike you as very odd. When I read it, I'm thinking, is Paul smoking something here? 
Does he not understand the analogy about conquering? Conquerors don't die. They're not sheep to be slaughtered. Conquerors live. They're doing the slaughtering. And yet he says, in these things, namely tribulation, distress, persecution, even being slaughtered like a sheep, we are more than conquerors. What he's saying is that like Margaret Wilson, death can have its way with you, and yet you can still conquer because you remain in the love of Christ. The love of Christ is a powerful love that binds you to him and that will not release you. And so if you're not separated, then you've conquered, as it were. But Paul says a little bit different. He says you will be more than a conqueror. What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? Well, if you're a conqueror, if you're a conqueror, you defeat your foe. So you defeat death or tribulation or persecution or distress, and you still remain in the love of Christ. But if you're more than a conqueror, you take those things that would come after you and you make them your tool. You make them your servant. You make them your slave. We see that, we've already, we saw that, or we would have seen it in verse 28 if we had read that. What is he saying there in verse 28? It's a very famous verse. I think it's on the screen. Um, you haven't, we haven't read it, but he, he says that for those who loved God, all things work together for their good. Verse 37, he comes back to the all things. And so now he's going to say that you are more than a conqueror. You know, a conqueror would simply defeat the all things, but more than a conqueror, if you're more than a conqueror, you take the all things and you subjugate them and you make them useful to you. You make them useful to God. You make them serve your purpose. A conqueror will nullify the purpose of his enemy, but one who is more than a conqueror will make the enemy serve his purposes. A conqueror will strike down his foe, but if you're more than a conqueror, you make your foe your slave. And isn't Jesus the, the prime example of this? Right? He, he stood on the neck of death. He conquered death. He defeated death. He rose again. But now he didn't only defeat it. He took death and he made death his tool. He used death to be the, the means by which, the, the point at which God and his people were reconciled. Forgiveness was achieved. He subjugated death. Not only conquered it, he became more than a conqueror. And personally, I love to think about Jesus' love as being more than a feeling, more than the idea that he is, you know, he has this disposition of like toward us or this, this ambiguous collocation of emotions toward us, but that his love is a power, a conquering force that vanquishes our foes and takes all these things that would intend to strike off our faith, and he uses it to strike off our worldliness. He uses the things that would come to destroy us and, he, and, and God's love is powerful enough to make it serve us. And so he is saying here, this is, he's saying take everything in your life, take everything that is negative, everything that is painful, every reality that is harsh and awful, take that reality and begin to say, how can I not simply remain in faith? How can I not simply cling to Christ in the midst of this? But how can I see God use this to make me more than a conqueror? How can I see God use this 
for his purposes, for his ways, to transform me, to make my enemy my slave. Now, hopefully, as we've been talking about this, I hope that you've started to at least feel something move in your heart and say, I want that. I, I, I want to know that God is for me. I want to know that, 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 that nobody can bring a charge against me, that I can't be condemned. I want to know that nothing can ever separate me, that I have that, that kind of security in the love of Christ. And so the question is, how can you know if this promise is yours? Because the promise has really been conditional throughout. We saw it in verse 28. It's only for those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. It's been conditional throughout. How can you know if the promise is yours? And so I, I just came up with this simple question that we can ask ourselves and decide. Here's the question. Just think, answer it in your own heart before God. If you could choose to either have a pain-free life where you could not and did not know Christ or a life that involved pain and sorrow but where you did know Christ, which one would you choose? Does it mean are you always perfectly thinking that or are you always perfectly believing that? Does it mean do you like pain? Does it mean any of those things? But, but, but overall, which one would you choose? Pain-free world, no Jesus, world that does have pain with Jesus. And if you pick the former, if you say that I would rather have a world without pain and know Jesus, then what he's saying there is this promise is not for you. God is not for you in his infinite power. He is against you. All things are not working to your good. They are working to your misery. But if you are at least struggling to answer the question, striving to answer the question, I would rather have a world, even if I have to experience pain, I'd rather have the world with Jesus. And the glorious promises are yours. Because it says that Jesus is not just a genie in the bottle to get me what I want in this world, but he is valuable and prized and treasured even above pain-free existence. Isn't that what God is intending to show all along? That Jesus is more to be valued and treasured and prized than anything else in all of creation. So the question is, is Jesus enough in a world of pain? Is his love enough in a world of pain? And if you answer yes... And the promises are for you. He is for you. No one can condemn you. No one can bring a charge against you. Nothing can separate you. You are secure. And why would God want to make us so? Why would God spend all this time? Why would Paul go on and on about our eternal security and saying, listen, God is for you and he, he loves you and he won't condemn you and he will never be separated from you. Why does God do that? Is it so we can, can simply be comfortable with our lives and at ease and go home and sit in our armchairs and never think about this again? No. It is to take the things that we find our security in in this world and expose them for the illusions that they are. It is to take the things that we see as security and comfort and stability in this world and show them to be a myth, to show them that our, what we see as confidence and secure is actually an illusion. 
And so he begins to say, I want to give you eternal security up here at this level. I want you to know that at this level, in spite of pain and negative and horrific things, God is for you and he loves you so that down here you can risk all these other things that are really insecure anyway. And so this passage begins to come at us and say, look at these things you think are secure. Look at your 401k and your retirement, your investment. It could be wiped away like this. Look at the career that you're working so hard to build. It could be gone in an instant with the slightest economic downturn. And many of you know that. Look at your, 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 your health and your personal, your personal appearance. You work so hard to maintain. And many of you, of you know a doctor's visit can just take that from you. There's no security in those things. These are all good things, but they are not ultimate things. They are, they're good things, but they're not secure. They're good things, but they are not the satisfying things. And sometimes God's love comes and exposes them for what they are and begins to powerfully wipe them away and wean us from inferior joy of those things, inferior security in those things to the superior joy that is in him. To experience what Psalm 63, 3 says, your steadfast love, O Lord, is better than life. That's an amazing promise. I think missionary, the missionary Jim Elliott, I think he sums it up nicely in these words. He says, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. What are you trying to hold on to that you cannot keep? And what are you risking for Christ? Listen, if you know that in one year you're going to inherit $1 billion, you don't mind throwing $100 around here or there. And that's exactly what Paul is saying, is that all these things are yours. All of creation will be yours. So why not risk this earthly comfort and security for the cause of Christ, for the kingdom of Christ in the world? Why not let the love of Christ explode us out of our armchairs and our couches and into a risk-taking endeavor? Dream a dream for Jesus because his love promises us that no matter the risk, no matter the danger, no matter the tribulation and distress and the sword and the famine and the death, that he is for you. You cannot be condemned. And nothing, not even death itself, will ever separate you from the love that is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, the love of Christ is not a promise of escape, but is a promise of sheer triumph. Let's pray.